Good morning. For those of you that don't know, my name is Pastor Rick Eford. I had the privilege of being here, pastoring in the lead pastor role, the role that Caleb now holds for 30 years. And it's great to be home. You know, <laughs> thank you. You know, some of you probably think I've been on a long vacation because the last time I was here was Father's Day. But that's not true. Uh, you know, the reason I stepped down from the leadership role was to invest increasingly in younger men and women uh, who were in ministry. And thinking that this is the next segment, the next chapter of my life in ministry is to invest in those who will outlive me and who probably their ministry influence is going to go beyond what I can do. And a part of that is I'm preaching in other churches. I've actually preached in different churches every single, almost every single Sunday uh, since I was here on Father's Day. So if I'm not here, I'm not just kicking back and eating bonbons and that type of stuff. So if you wonder about it, pray for me because God's doing some great things. One of the wonderful things I love about investing in younger men and women is uh, just hearing stories about how God works in their lives. And I read of a, a young theologian, uh, aspiring theologian and pastor, and, and uh, he was a bright, articulate student, and he immersed himself in theological and biblical studies, and he really wanted to stand forth and proclaim God's word every week to a group of people. And, and yet something happened in his late teens, he began to lose his vision. And it became very evident that it was not going to get better. Now, what would, how would that affect his ministry? How would that affect his role? And I'm sure he, like I and like you, would be questioning, God, what's with this? Why would this be the case? And I'm sure there was discouragement, there was frustration, because as his sight began to fade, probably his dreams did as well. Then his darkness intensified, not physical as much as emotional, because the woman he was engaged to, when he told her that he was losing his vision and he was not going to get better, decided to break off the engagement because she could not see living the rest of her life with someone who was blind. Again, God, what's about this? Why is this? You know, I think as we look at this, you may understand what it is to be in a time of darkness. Maybe your eyesight physically is perfect, but, but there's an emotional, there's a spiritual darkness that's there. It's, it, there's a difficulty in your life. You know, I, I've got a friend that is in the um, ICU. He's been in there for five weeks now since an accident that he had, just out having fun with some friends. His wife's not been able to talk to him since the accident. You think there's a sense of aloneness there? I think there's a sense of desperation, yet every blog that she posts points people to Jesus. Where does that kind of hope come from? I was just at a memorial service a few weeks ago. Some of you were there too. Rochelle Ledbetter, someone who had been a part of this church for a long time, and at 54, she passed away due to lung cancer. And one of the people said, why Shelly? Well, that doesn't make any sense. She never smoked, she ate healthy, she worked out, she exercised, she was a woman that followed Christ. Why, Shelly, this makes no sense. And maybe you're going through a time in which life just doesn't make sense. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's financially you're struggling. Maybe there's someone in your life that you love very much who's making bad decisions and you see it destroying them and there's not much you can do about it except for pray. And and there's a frustration that comes when that happens, and we can enter into a darker night of the soul. But I want to tell you something. There's a phrase, and it's very true, and that is, it's often darkest just before the dawn. It's often darkest just before the dawn. That's true in your life, it's true in my life, and it is, certainly was true in the life of Jesus Christ. 
We want to look this evening at the very last night that Jesus spent with his disciples and walk with him as we examine Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 42, and take a walk with Jesus on the lonely path to the cross. So I invite you to turn with me to that portion of Scripture, and we're going to go through it. I'll read some of these pieces, but the Scriptures are going to be listed for you so you can come back and look it up yourself. But it's so much, it's going to be hard to get it all in. So I just would rather, in most cases, tell you the story. And that's what this is. It's a narrative. It's meant to have a flow. Well, the first movement, the first chapter, the first paragraph in this narrative starts in verse 12. And I will read this. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them. Now, the two we know from a different gospel is Peter and John. So he sent Peter and John and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready there, prepare for this. And the disciples set out and went to the city. They found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Hit the pause button there with me for a second. What was this Passover thing? The Passover was an annual event to commemorate something that had happened many centuries before in the life of the history of Israel. And not to presume that you understand that, it goes back to the end of the book of Genesis where Jacob and his family were living in the land of Canaan, but there was an incredible famine in the land of Canaan, and so they immigrated to Egypt. They were reunited with their brother Joseph, and in Egypt, God blessed them, not just giving them food, but for the next 400 years, he multiplied their numbers. They grew, and, and they were prosperous there. But it became a threat to the Egyptians in whose land they were living. And so in order to repress them and hold them down, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. And they made them do many, many long, harsh tasks. And even as the population grew, one of the horrible things that happened was they ordered an edict to kill all of the, the male children that were less than two years old in the, in the, of the Israelites. Well, thankfully, there was one of those children that was spared. His name was Moses. And as the people languished under this, they cried out to God, to Jehovah, to Yahweh. They cried out, oh, God, save us. Oh, God, deliver us. And so he did that. He began that process through sending Moses to speak to Pharaoh and to say, God says, the great I am says, let my people go. And what did Pharaoh say to that, those of you that know? No. Are you kidding? I wouldn't do that. This is my labor force. Why would I do that? And so God began to send a number of plagues, 10 and all, upon the Egyptians for a couple of reasons. One was to motivate them to let the people go, but it was a bigger purpose, and that was to show that he alone was God. And all of the plagues were, were attacks against the gods of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh. Pharaoh has said no. Sometimes he said yes, then he relented, but he said no. Now, nine times. Well, there's a tenth and final plague that's coming. And that plague is the death of the firstborn, including the house of Pharaoh and throughout the land. There's a death angel, whether there's a plague or whatever else that was so selective, it comes in, and it's only going to kill the firstborn of every family. But God, who is full of grace and mercy, provided a means through which that could be averted. 
The way that he did that, we find recorded in Exodus chapter 12. And I'll read you a couple of verses in just a second. But the story is this. The narrative is, he made a provision saying, on the first day of the month of Nisan, which was the first month of the year for the Hebrews, it corresponds to our March and April, said, I want you to gather together, and you're to take all the leaven out of your house. And then on the 10th month, I want you to take a lamb from the flocks. This lamb should be one of the best. It should be the best of the flock, an unblemished lamb, not one that's mangy, not one that you just want to get rid of. Bring that one into the house and keep it in the house for four days. Now, for those of you that have children, if you bring a lamb from the stable, one year old, into the house, what happens in four days? They bond, right? It ceases being a barnyard animal and now becomes a pet. Am I right? Well, and if you've got kids in the room, I'm sorry for this. It's graphic and it's gross, but it is what happened. On the 14th day of the month, they were to take the lamb outside and they were to kill it. They were to hold it up, slit its throat, drain the blood out of it, and then they were to take it and dress it and bring it in, and they're going to eat this lamb, this what's known as a Passover lamb. But in the process, it says in Ezekiel, not Ezekiel, in Exodus chapter 12, they were to be very, very careful not even to break a single bone of that lamb's body. So what happens here? In Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, we see this on the screen. The blood will be a sign for you in the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, it sounds nonsensical, but God is often in the process of faith asking us to do something that doesn't seem to make any sense. And so they were to take some hyssop or a branch, and they were to dip it in that blood, and they were to put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the home. And what this is saying, when the death angel comes into the land, I will see the blood, and he will pass over your home. And that's exactly what God did on that night. The next verse tells us, though, what Jesus is celebrating, and that is in verse 14. It says, this day shall be kept for you as a memorial day, and you will keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So for generations, God's people, the children of Israel, have been gathering to celebrate the Passover. And oftentimes in a home, they would get together and they would go through this and the oldest child, the oldest male child would say something to the effect of, and what is the significance of this day? What makes it different than all others? And then the father would go through and he would explain to them how when they were in Egypt, God caused all these things to happen and redeemed them, bought them out of the land of Egypt. That's what Jesus and the disciples were celebrating. It's a great time. It's literally the last meal, though, that Jesus is going to have with them. And in the process of this meal, we see the next thing that happens as he's preparing this feast, and that is that Jesus predicted that one of the disciples would betray him. One of them was going to turn him over to the authorities. One of them was going to metaphorically stab him in the back. So when he predicts this, what do each of the disciples begin to do? Lord, is it me? Is it I? Lord, is it I? And one by one they go through. And of course, you and I know this side of history, the name of the disciple that was the betrayer. His name was Judas. Even Judas says, Lord, is it I? Now, Jesus says, perhaps in an aside to him, it is as you have said. In another passage, he says, go and what you do, do quickly. 
Now, the disciples, we understand, understood him to mean that Judas was to go out and make further preparations. There was nothing that he was being pointed out or outed at this point. See, Judas was a trusted disciple, not just one of the 12. He was the treasurer of the group. And who should be more trusted than the one who handles whatever money that they had? So they assumed that Judas was going to go out. Judas's name forevermore would be marked with that of a betrayer. If you say to someone, you're a Judas, that's not a good thing. Some of you understand, some of us understand to a degree the, the angst, the anguish, the loneliness that would have come to Jesus when one of your hand-picked, chosen ones, people that should have your back, is about to stab you in the back. If you've been involved with someone, maybe in marriage, maybe in a close, committed relationship, and they were unfaithful to the commitment that they made to you, you know somewhat of what it is to be betrayed. If you have shared with a close confidant something that you just needed to get off your chest and you wanted someone to walk with you and you wanted someone to pray for you and they said, I'll keep this confident and they didn't do that. Perhaps they even went out and shared it as a prayer request to people that were neither a part of the problem nor the solution. You know what it is to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it is when you and I experience that. For he was betrayed beyond comparison. Jesus predicted that that would be the case. But then we see what happens here is Jesus gives new meaning to an ancient memorial, as we see in verses 22 through 25. Here I will read this section as well. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now the credible thing about this is there's only 11 that are left, and Jesus is teaching them, my death on the cross is going to be reflective of what you've been celebrating for generations. That I am the Passover lamb, the one that John the baptizer said, behold, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus Christ himself would die an innocent, unblemished lamb. That you and I might have the forgiveness of sins. And even as he hung on that cross, when they came to him as the custom was to break his legs, they didn't need to do that because he had already died. So instead they speared him in the side. Jesus fulfilling prophecy that they had been doing for, for memorial, for ancient of days. And yet he gives new meaning to it. My body which is broken for you, my blood which is shed for you is done, as it says in the book of Hebrews, for the forgiveness, the remission, the expiation, the taking away of your sin. Your sin, my sin, their sin is now placed on Jesus as our substitute, as our sacrifice. What an incredible thing to know. But notice it's not just about the death of Jesus. Did you notice that last verse? Jesus said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until when? Until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. One of the great things about this, whenever we celebrate the Lord's table, as we're going to do a little bit later in this morning, we celebrate and remember his death, but we also remember 
in doing that until Christ comes back. How can he come back if he was still dead in the grave? We celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was alluding to this. Any time throughout his life when he talked about his death, he also spoke of the future. Friends, when you and I are going through difficult circumstances, we need to take those, not stick our head in the sands, but understand no matter how distasteful, how discouraging, how frustrating they are, we need to see them in light of the bigger picture. It's Friday, but Sundays are coming. I love there's a preacher that did that. It's an incredible message. Go online and listen to it sometime. It's Friday right now, but Sundays are coming. It's a great picture to see it's, this is not all that there is. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. But his loneliness was to be accelerated even more. When he predicted not only the betrayal, he gives this meaning to the passage, but he also talks in terms about each of you is going to go away from By the way, I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. So in the Passover meal, there's four different cups. I need to tell you this because it's important. The four different cups start out from Exodus. In this passage, if you can go back, I know I'm messing up here. Here's Exodus 6, and this is where they all come from. Say therefore to the people of Israel that I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, the Passover meal, there's four cups. We have glasses up here. Basically, that's not what they would have drunk out of. It would have been pottery or woodenware, something like that. But the four cups are these. The cup of sanctification, I will make you to be my people. I will set you apart for a purpose. Secondly is the cup of deliverance. I will deliver you from under the hands of the Egyptians. Thirdly is the cup of redemption, and when Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood, as a Passover meal, this would have been the cup of redemption where a person is purchased out of slavery by a price that is precious. Jesus paid the price. And the fourth is the cup of praise. That's how we end. We send a, a psalm from halal or psalms of praise to God. Now, it goes from here, though, and that should be a high note, but Jesus, again, predicts that all of his disciples are not going to betray him, but they are going to abandon him. And we see that in verses uh, 26 through 31. He warns them, I know your intentions are good, but you're not going to hang with me. In that passage, we see that Jesus predicts this, and of course, all of them say, not me, I'll be there. Peter himself says, Lord, if everybody else abandons you, I'm with you. I'm with you, I'm in lockstep. And Jesus said, Peter, even you will abandon me. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And all of them said, no, Lord, we won't do this. But Jesus warned them that I know your intentions are good, but you will abandon me. Excuse me a second. You know, this is not just a history lesson. The question is, a lot of us have good intentions, but we tend to abandon Christ. We may not deny him like Judas did or betray him like Judas did. And by the way, I, I don't believe because of the terms that are used there when it talks about Judas that he was really a follower of Jesus. I know he was with them for three years. I know he was trusted. 
But John, the disciple, says whom Jesus loves, said they went out from us that they would never, that it might become evident they were never really a part of us. Jesus calls Judas the son of damnation, the son of eternal judgment. It doesn't sound like he's talking to someone who's a genuine follower of Jesus. You know, it is possible that there are people who are in church, even in positions of church leadership, who profess the name of Jesus, but who are not truly a follower of Jesus. There are others, all of us to some degree or another, who even though we are followers of Jesus, will deny him in some way, shape, or form, like Peter did, like the other disciples. I've done that. I'll bet you have too. I have denied the name of Christ by my lifestyle and by my works at different places of course my life because I was more concerned about what people thought than what God thought. And I aligned myself, I compromised values that I knew were there and there was a disconnect within my own spirit as God's spirit was bringing me under conviction but I still compromised because I wanted to fit in to this or that group. Friends, that's denying Christ. That's living as an anti-Christ, against his values, against his heart. And each of us has that capacity within us. Jesus is warning them what's coming. You know, I told you earlier on about George, the seminarian who wanted to be a pastor. Well, his full name is George Matheson. George Matheson lived in a different generation. He's not one of the students I have worked with because he lived in the late 1800s. Some of you may question that. But all this, what I said before was true. But God provided for George Matheson. He provided his sister to come alongside of him that in his physical blindness, she took seminary classes with him. She learned Greek with him. She learned Hebrew with him. She learned Latin with him. And she was by his side in ministry for well over a decade. And then something happened. She fell in love. She was engaged. And on her wedding night, George Matheson, once again, struggling with what it was going to be, what's my life going to be when the person I've leaned on the most of my life is leaving me for somebody else. And there's no judgment on her. That was a normal, natural, positive transition. But think of where it left him. Think of the questions that he would have had. And yet we see where his heart was. He says this, and he wrote a song, a song that became a hymn of faith for the Christians over the many years. And I'm just going to read you two stanzas, but listen to what he's doing in the context in which that was written. Oh, <clears throat> oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Listen to this. It's the third stanza. O joy that seeketh me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. He understood that sometimes it's darkest just before the dawn. He understood it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Because God continued to work with him as he pastored and led a church of 1,500 to 2,000 people in Scotland for the rest of his life. God was sufficient. And these words he wrote in less than five minutes, he didn't even put the pen down as he poured out his heart onto paper. Oh, love that will not let me go. Oh, joy 
See, he understood what Jesus understood as it talks about Hebrews 12. Jesus was for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And he despised the shame. His joy was to bring salvation to you and to me and to these individuals, to anyone that would receive it. And that motivated him to go to the cross. See, as he goes out and he goes out in prayer, we see that he anguished in prayer alone while the disciples slept. We see him going out from this place. He takes all of the 11 with him, and then he goes further with, two of, with three of his closest, Peter, James, and John, and he says to them, here, wait and watch and pray with me while I go a little further. And he prays, and through his prayer three different times, he prays, God, I want to glorify you with my death as I have with my life. But if there's any way, let this cup, let this death, let me go into the cross, let that pass from me. If there's any way, do I have to really do this? You see what it means? He endured the cross. He despised the shame. But where did he end that prayer? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. At the end of the day, I want to glorify you above all else, even if it means my death. That's what Paul meant when he was in Roman prison. And he said, for to me, whether I'm released or whether I die for my faith, to me to live is Christ and to die is simply gain. He understood that. Jesus comes back to his disciples and he finds them asleep. Now don't, don't get too hard on them. It was after midnight probably before the Passover meal was finished. This is in the small morning hours. But yet notice how he said the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. I'm so thankful prayer is a part of our church and I'm so thankful that we have been involved in four weeks of concerted prayer, asking for God's direction. We're entering the fourth week. For those of you that united in that way, thank you for doing that. For those of you that haven't, it's not too late. Get involved this week. Be praying because prayer was such a critical part of Jesus' life, and it should be ours. The beauty of all of this is Jesus continued to pray, and he prayed right up until the time of his arrest because his focus was not on him, was for the joy set before him. He endured all of this. 1967, there was a young woman, fun-living, fun-loving, and full of life, athletic, who dove in the Chesapeake Bay and fractured her neck because it was too shallow. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know her story. Fifty years ago, that happened, and I want to read something to you that's her reflections after 50 years that shows her heart is the same as Jesus. She's at her desk writing to Tommy, who's a 17-year-old who had dove into the, he was surfing off the Jersey Shore, and he had a similar accident and broke his neck, and he's now quadriplegic. Here's what she says. Halfway through my letter describing the hurdles that Tommy would expect in rehab, I stopped I felt utterly overwhelmed thinking of what lies ahead for him. I've been there. And even though half a century has passed, I can still taste the anguish. Hot, silent tears begin streaming, and I choked out of prayer. Oh, God, how will Tommy do it? How will he ever make it? Have mercy. Help him find you. She says, Tommy's facing an impossible task. And she went on and said, somehow... I made it, or the Holy Spirit did it in me. As of today, I've been doing it for 50 years. Like Tommy, I was once the 17-year-old who rested at the thought of living life without a working body. 
I hated my paralysis so much that I would drive my power wheelchair into walls, repeatedly banging my hands into walls until they cracked. Early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. Frankly, I wanted to die. What a difference time makes as well as prayer, heavenly-minded friends, and deep study of God's Word. All combined, I began to see that there are more important things in life than walking and having the use of your hands. Let's say that again. It's incredible, but I would really rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. But whenever I try to explain it, I hardly know where to begin. Yet I know this, I'm in the zone whenever I infuse Christ's encouragement into the hearts of people like Tommy. It feels so right to agonize alongside of them, better yet to participate in their suffering in the spirit of 2 Corinthians 1.6, which says, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. Can I do something for Tommy's comfort and salvation? You bet I can. Where does that type of faith and that type of confidence come? I can tell you this, the message of this morning's passage is this, Jesus suffered alone so you and I don't have to. We have a high priest who ever lives to make intercession prayer for you and for me. He understands what you're going through. He understands what I'm going through. And if you know Jesus beyond just a head knowledge, you can have that hope. Like the people we've talked about today. Would you like that? In just a moment, where our ushers are going to come forward, and they're going to distribute some elements, bread and, and a cup, and I'm going to ask you to hold those till everybody's been served. But even in preparation for that, I want to ask you this. If you know that your sins have been forgiven because of your faith in Jesus Christ, simply thank him. Thank you for that. If you're not sure that they have been, why not accept his gift this morning? There's a God who loves you so much that he said, even though you and I are sinners, we're, our, our life is so far short of his glorious standards. And that has separated us from him. He loves you so much that he still sent Jesus to die on a cross and to be raised from the dead. Friends, if you believe that, not just intellectually, if you believe that and you're willing to receive it by simply by faith saying, God, forgive me, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then begin the work of making me your disciple that I might follow you, I might live for you in a way that people see Jesus in me. He'll do that. Would you bow your heads with me right now, but more importantly, humble your hearts?